We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Hello and welcome to the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio. My guest today is journalist, photographer, storyteller, author, and social media sensation Brandon Stanton, whose photo blog, Humans of New York, has spawned three best-selling books and a Facebook TV series. And in fact, I've been such an admirer of Brandon's for so long that a few years ago I called and invited him to lunch, which he kindly accepted. So we met for lunch at my apartment along with my daughter, who is an artist who also loves his work. And I have to say, meeting Brandon made me an even bigger fan, as I'm sure you'll all find out today. Brandon, welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. You're very sweet. So Humans of New York wasn't your first choice of a career. What happened in 2010 that led you to create it? Um, well, I guess the short answer to that question is I got fired. Um, I was working as a bond trader in Chicago, and that's just something I kind of fell into. Um, you know, I was work I was a history major in school, and I graduated, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had a friend that was, you know, working in finance out in Chicago, and he got me an interview, and I ended up getting a job. So, you know, I worked for two years um, very obsessively basically trying to make money in the bond markets. Uh, I always told myself that, oh, I'm an, an artistic person. I'm going to make my money first. And and then once I get like this bubble and once I get enough security, I'm going to pivot and do something that I wanted to do. And, um, you know, losing my job after two years um, kind of forced me to reexamine that strategy because two years had gone by. I got fired. I had no money saved up. And I wasn't really any closer to, you know, pursuing something that was more, you know, self-initiated or self-motivated. And so I said, I'm going to spend the next phase of my life, instead of trying using my time to make money, I'm going to spend the next phase of my life trying to make just enough money to where I can control my time and choose the work I do every day. And at the time, uh, I enjoyed doing photography. So losing a job is kind of traumatic for most people, especially if they haven't saved money. Right. But you turned it into an opportunity. How, how did that happen? Well, and I thought it was going to be traumatic for me because, you know, the you know the thing I had feared more than anything else was losing that job. Uh, but then the day that it happened was actually surprisingly a good day. Uh, you know, I remember taking a walk that day and, you know, I had all spent The last two years of my life, all of my mental energy had been focused on how do I turn this job around? How do I perform better? How do I keep this job? And then suddenly when what I feared the most happened, when I lost it, suddenly all of that mind space and all of those thoughts I could direct towards, you know, what do I want to be doing, you know? And so I kind of started daydreaming for the first time in a long time. You know, what do I want to do? Uh, and, you know, that kind of led me down the path of, you know, having the idea for Humans of New York and eventually pursuing it. And it started as you wanted to take pictures of people in the street. Right. You know, I one, one distinction that I always make is that Humans of New York was not an idea that I had that I executed. It wasn't that the work followed the idea. 
my idea was that I wanted to photograph. That was it. I didn't have the idea of photographing people or interviewing people. I just knew that I wanted to photograph. And so I started photographing every single day, you know, and it started out with just pictures of graffiti and, you know, buildings and street signs. And then I started photographing people, which seemed more unique. And so then I only started photographing people. Then I started doing portraits of people. And then I had the idea that if I was going to do portraits of people, then I should move to New York where there's tons of people and a diverse group of people. And then I started adding quotes from people. And then the quotes turned into conversations and the conversations turned into interviews. And that's what Humans of New York is known for today. So it wasn't that I had this kind of flash of inspiration that led to success. I just got out there and did what I wanted to do every single day and had these hundreds of small evolutions that eventually led to something that became successful. And you've called this combination of the captions with the photos a kind of magic. What is the magic in the storytelling, in the photograph, in the combination? Right. Well, you know, I had been doing Humans of New York or, or photography for a long time before, you know, anything. Well, I guess a, a long time in, in modern age, uh, which was like a year of every single day I was doing it. And <laughs> um, nothing was really catching on. And I was just kind of taking these photos of people. And th when it really started to take off was when I started to add these quotes from people and I started to learn a little bit about them and include it with their with their photograph and I think you know what it was about that combination that I think went so viral or you know captured so many people's attention was the combination of this random person that you're seeing on the street that you know nothing about and is completely anonymous with a quote or a revelation that was often kind of deeply personal And, I, you know, I think it struck on something in people that we have these desires to kind of know about the people around us. You know, it's why we like to people watch. It's that we're curious about these these people around us. And here, you know, over a year and months of approaching 10,000 people on the street, I had gotten very good at approaching strangers and making those people comfortable enough to share with me about their lives. So through doing that so much, I think I was able to kind of scratch that itch that people have to know about the people around them. And I think that's probably why it grew so fast. And for you, you said one of the hardest things is kind of being rejected, approaching somebody and um, them saying no. Right. Um, Has that gotten easier? Uh, <laughs> it's still probably the hardest job. And I, and I think about that, you know, there, it's the hardest part about doing Humans of New York or something similar Um to humans of New York, it's it's not the people who say yes that make it difficult. It's, you know, it's not taking the correct picture or asking, you know, the right questions. You know, those are skills. But um, it's hard because, you know, it's a lot of being out there, having people who don't want to talk to you, having people ignore you. And then when people do, you know, agree to get into a conversation, You know, a lot of people don't open up, which is completely their right, but makes it very hard to make a, you know, compelling narrative. Uh, so sometimes you can be sitting with somebody with 30 or 45 minutes and, and, you know, really trying to get them to share about themselves and they just don't quite want to. So, you know, behind these kind of beautiful, seemingly, you know, magically falling together moments <laughs> and quotes from people on the street are, you know, thousands of miles walked, thousands of people approached thousands and thousands of people who told me no or rejected me 
and then a lot of interviews that didn't quite work out. So there is a, you know, a lot of work and a lot of rejection behind these seemingly effortless moments. And is there like a first question now? Yeah. Uh, what's your biggest challenge right now? It's one that I like to ask because I think, you know, a lot of times it's just an invitation for people to <laughs> unburden themselves, um, you know, of something that they've been carrying around. And I also, you know, even though sometimes, especially, I, you know, I can get in these streaks where the blog can get kind of dark or depressing uh, because we're just talking about people's problems all the time. You know, some, uh, there's, you know, for people who follow the blog, you know, you have a lot of cute moments, a lot of kids, a lot <laughs> of funny quotes. But it can also have these streaks where, you know, we are we're talking about things that people are struggling with or obstacles that people have overcome. And even though these can be some of the hardest to read you know, I think that it's probably when the work is at its best and most meaningful because I think we tend to empathize with people's problems more than we empathize with their successes. You know, when when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you know, knowing that that person was the, you know, an all-American football player in high school might not <laughs> mitigate the anger that you feel towards them knowing that that person might be late to the hospital because their wife is going through cancer suddenly makes you look at their behavior in a lens that you might not have considered before. So, you know, I think one of the reasons that I do, you know, like to go into things that people are struggling with or might be challenging them because I think it puts people in a light that other people might not have considered them. And that is, I think, I don't know who it was, some... Some quote is saying, you know, love begins when you see pain in others. Mm -hmm. But it also balances, you know, the whole social media right. focus on the high real of our lives. Right. And people sort of comparing themselves. Right. With others who are presenting like right. their best selves or their best moments. So you are helping us connect with people's pain and therefore kind of allow ourselves to experience our own. Well, and I think that's, you know, another reason why it grew so fast on social media, because so much of social media, the way people use it is to brand themselves or present themselves in an image that they want to be seen as. And therefore, what you have in your newsfeed is, like you said, kind of the highlight reels of people's lives. And I think when you're scrolling down your newsfeed and you're seeing, you know, this person bought this house, this person had this child, this person's kid just graduated and all these happy, 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 happy moments that might make you feel bad about yourself um, because you're going through things. And then suddenly you have this, you know, very intimate portrait of a stranger who's who's talking about something that, that, that they're really struggling about with and they might not choose to broadcast on social media you know, I think that really kind of stands out in an environment and an atmosphere where everyone is kind of posturing. And I think it kind of allows for a moment of connection that might be more difficult to achieve otherwise. When you answered the Thrive Global Questionnaire, you said something that you got from the Malcolm Gladwell book, The Tipping Point, that success isn't linear and that it can come suddenly if you keep making small improvements. So it may feel sudden, but in fact, it's the end of a long process. Right. Um, is that how you see the success of Humans of New York? Yeah, I mean, that that 
that lesson in that book, you know, got me kind of through the, you know, first year of Humans of New York. It's that, you know, just because just because nothing's happened yet doesn't mean that something can't happen suddenly if I, you know, keep keep making these small improvements. One thing that, I, you know, I tell college kids is that whether whether you're starting a business or whether you're being an artist, the reason it's so hard to do both of those things is that it takes so much effort. The lion's share of the effort becomes before you have your first true fan. And this is not somebody who's your cousin, your family, your friend telling you they like your work. This isn't somebody kind of superficially connecting with your work and giving it a like. This is somebody that because of the effort you put in behind the scenes and when nobody was paying attention to get your art up to a certain level, connects with your work in a deep way and because of no social obligation to you. And it's so hard to be an artist because it takes so long to get there. And it's so easy to give up before you found your first true fan. But once you find that person, you know, that's when you've hit the tipping point is when you've made so many small improvements, you've found that person that really connects with your work and seeks it out because they love it and not because they know you or because they want to support you. And that's when you've made it because the world is such a big place that you know if you find that one person that connects you with your work like that, there's hundreds and thousands, in the case of Humans of New York, millions and tens of millions of people who will share that same connection. And is that one person like a mythical person, or it does? Well, no, it in... it's Dennis in Ohio. It's... You know, I, I remember. <laughs> I, 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 rem <laughs> I remember. You know, the most exciting moments for me. The, the, the we're at the very beginning on Facebook, when I was checking my Facebook page, and it only had a few hundred likes at that time, and I started seeing names of people that I did not know, and I did not have mutual friends with starting to follow my page and it started as one every few days then one a day then 10 a day and once it got up to that point of like 10 a day that's when I knew that I had made it because it was just work at that time you know I remember doing the math there wasn't some magic secret mystery I had to discover I was growing by 10 people a day that I did not know just because I was going out and photographing every day. And I remember doing the math. I was with my friend in Central Park. It was the night of the supermoon. I remember this. And I did the math, and I told him, in three years, I will have 10,000 Facebook fans. And that, to me, was success. Because, remember, I just wanted to find a way to make just enough money to photograph all day And to long. be in control of your time. There you go. And I thought, if I have 10,000 Facebook fans... And how many fans, did you have at the end of three years? Oh, 10 million, maybe? <laughs> Yeah. Was there a Dennis from oh, Ohio? Oh, Dennis. I mean, I, I, I say that I can't remember, you know, the first name, but it was just, it was the... Sounds good. Yeah, I know, I know. It's, it's, he's, he's, he's a good go-to person. I hope but he it didn't was just, vote for Donald Trump. It was probably, it, knowing humans of New York, it was probably a Denise from Ohio. Um, the, the humans of New York's following, um, you know, I think, I think the females probably led the way uh, in that charge. What is interesting about your captions is that their distillation of the story, they're not really very long. Right. And um, 
you've talked about your love of Ernest Hemingway for his ability to cut things out mm-hmm. and to kind of distill the what is essential. Does that take long, a long time? Do you know uh, immediately what's I mean, essential? The, the, I think I, I think it was Hemingway that said, you know, the reader can tell how much good stuff you cut out. You know, so it does take a long time. And these these captions that are sometimes only five or six minutes long come from conversations that could be one hour or two hours long. You know what I mean? And it's that it's to get the, that that moment. You know, to get to get kind of the truth and the the epiphany and and the the thing in their story that in itself as a kernel kind of represents something much larger. And I mean, this is the ideal. I mean, I'm sure I, I, don't, I don't kind of touch on this surreal truth with, you know, every single one of my photos, maybe not even 50% of them. But, you know, to, to get to that kind of place, you know, takes a lot of effort and, and a lot of time. And then you, you know, spend all that time and then you take that one most powerful moment. And it's like, you know, people don't see the work you put into it, but they feel it because you felt it. And in 2015, when you had interviewed more than 10,000 people, you said that one of the most common answers you get to the questions about people's biggest struggles is about balancing their lives. People who wish they'd skipped a work commitment to be there for a family one. So tell me more about that. That's normally the first answer I always get. But I think I was using that as an example of kind of like my interview style is that in you know interviewing 10,000 people, what I'm always looking for is something that that person has told me that nobody else has told me. And so, um, you know, I think I said almost always the answer to what's your greatest struggle, not almost always, but a lot of times is, you know, finding work-life balance. And so then, you know, the, the question becomes, well, what aspect of your life do you feel that you are neglecting for work? Um, you know, probably my family. Um, can you give me an example of something that you missed that you feel guilty about because you were at a work obligation? Then suddenly you start to get a story. And what I try to do is take these very general statements that, that everybody goes through and try to find kind of the narrative underpinnings and the stories and the, and the, and the characters and, and the people that, you know, that they interacted with that kind of led to this realization and tell that story. So having listened to so many people express regret about how they spend their time, has that affected the way you choose to spend your time? I think you're forced to really philosophize about time when you run out of it. You know what I mean? It's like, um, and that's when you really kind of start doing having to do the mathematics about, you know, what it, what it's worth and, you know, what what is success and, and how are you using your time to, you know, kind of reach that I- ideal of the success. And, you know, I'm kind of hitting, hitting you know, one of these moments now, um, very similar to kind of the moment that <clears throat> I hit, um, you know, after I left my job in Chicago because... You know, I am coming off a period where I've had no time for, you know, a a very extended period, months and months and months. And it was because of this television series that I just finished, which is all consuming. Um, It's 
more than 10, a hundred times more consuming than the photography. Um, because, you know, I have to do, you know, the editing and doing the interviewing and, you know, I, we did 1200 interviews and we used, you know, 120 of them. So it's very inefficient. But again, I think you can feel it when you watch that, you know, as Hemingway said, how much good stuff did not make it in there. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, considering about whether to do another season of that or do I want to go back to photos, which can be done much more quickly. And um, so, yeah, you know, I am having to ask myself, you know, a lot of, you know, what is success? What is what is Humans of New York? You know, is it to, you know, make something, you know, I think that, you know, the television series is a much more refined version of it in a lot of ways. But if it takes a 100 times longer and, Maybe, you know, a, a fraction of the people who will read a two-minute story will watch a 24-minute story. What is it that I'm trying to achieve, and, and how do I best use my time to do that? Because if it's making television, there's no time left over for anything else. And what would you like to do with that time that is not being spent photographing or making a television series? Is there something that calls you, something that you haven't done or haven't done enough? For me, it's, you know, my personal relationships and my work. You know, I've been lucky enough where my work is my leisure. You know, I get refreshed when I go out and I talk to people. So, you know, as, you know, addition to my personal relationships, what do I want to do with my productive time? Um, or is, you know, it's, I said, I, I, I caught myself because I said my Outside. productive yeah. time yeah and then i and then i almost like i, I censored myself it's like my social relationships and my productive time i'm sitting in front of ariana huffington she's probably like oh your social relationships not productive time uh my social relationships and you know my my work time uh you know i think that i got very lucky with humans of new york and you know i discovered something that people connect with and you know i want to change and i want to evolve you know i don't want to be like oh, Humans of New York was successful, so I bet I could go make a great fiction indie movie. You know what I mean? It's like I, I want to be, and I think Humans of New York is so broad because it's telling the stories of other people that I can stay in that lane forever and I can evolve in that lane forever. And so my question is always like, how do I better tell stories of other people and how do I, you know, tell stories of other people in the most you know, interesting way. But there is something very profound in the way you tell the stories. And I think it's a function of your own caring, which comes across because you've said once that if you ask with a genuine interest and a genuine curiosity and a level of compassion, there is very little that someone won't share with you. But these are really the key elements, the compassion, the genuine interest, uh, the shared humanity that you bring to every encounter. And that's what increasingly we're missing. It's, it's sort of interesting because when you said how people's regret is often how much time they spend at work compared to in their relationships, their family, what I was thinking is that maybe if you're asking that question in, say, five years, people would be regretting the time they spent on their devices more than the time they spend at work because we are becoming so addicted to our devices and uh, scrolling through our social media or you know playing it, Candy Crush. What do, you, what do you think? What do you, I mean, it's, 
I guess Candy Crush is, I kind of wonder if it's attention. You know, humans, I, I think a lot about attention being the very first drug. You know, the attention that you're getting from your mother and how you need that attention to survive. And, you know, I think in a way, you know, people get addicted to that attention in the same way that we get addicted to caffeine. And, you know, I think a lot of these social media, you know, programs are kind of supercharged to feed that addiction Mm -hmm. of getting attention. You're getting a like, you're getting a comment, you're getting a share. And, you know, and it's it's interesting because when I look around on the subway and I see everybody, you know, so... What, what is it that, that causes you to pull that phone out of your pocket every minute, every two minutes? Is there a new email? Is there a new notification? Is there a retweet? Is there a like? Did I get a message? And I'm noticing it more and more, and it's, become, it's becoming, you know, a, you know a, a, a real big issue because it's just like it's not only staring at these screens, but then staring at that screen is getting monetized. You know what I mean? And there's so many. All it is is... It's this very targeted research and science into how to keep you staring at that screen for as long as possible in order to serve you ads, which will fund more research and science into how to keep you staring at that screen. And it, it just results, in, and you look around, and it's people so disconnected from the world, you know? And, and from themselves. From themselves and, and things that, you know, really kind of give them nourishment. And I'm in this weird space to where I'm like trying to provide, you know, I'm out there having these really genuine connections face to face all day long, which is like the greatest part of my job is that, you know, I get to just lose myself in somebody else's story. And that's the best way to get you out of your own head. Um, You know, Adam Grant, I just saw a tweet that he says, like, it's such bad advice to go off and find yourself and then to be yourself. The correct advice is find who you care about and try to help them if you like, really want to be happy. You know what I mean? And so it's just like I get to do that every day, which is like sit at somebody's feet and listen to their stories and try to provide that moment of connection. But, you know, ironically, I'm providing it through a screen. You know what I mean? And in a way, you know, it's it's part of what keeps people looking at the screens. So it's something that... It's an interesting paradox that's, that that I've been kind of you know chewing on for a while now. Except that you're providing it through a screen, but um, it's the difference between offering a nourishing meal and junk food. So the I mean the screen is the medium through which we, we are feeding ourselves, but the problem is that so much of what we are feeding ourselves with is junk food. Right. And um, and what you said about attention, I think, is absolutely the case. And and if you analyze the science behind what's happening, it's the it's the science of intermittent uh, variable rewards that's used for slot machines. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at it uh, with a slot machine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why do you keep playing? Mm-hmm. Most yeah. of the time, you lose, yeah. but occasionally yeah. you win. And in the same way, why do you? Pull your phone out all the time. Most of the time, you don't get anything interesting, but every now and then, you do, and that keeps you going back for more. Mm. And the likes are um, a form of val- validation, a very sort of empty, superficial form of validation. Right. Because, as you said, until there is a real connection, it's a very superficial form of of approval. Mm. 
So it's kind of interesting. I'd love to see as you are going on with these conversations in the streets, what you hear about that, whether sort of certain themes are emerging, because so often in your stories, themes emerge right. uh, of what's happening in society at large. Right. I'll keep an eye out for you, Ariana. <laughs> keep an eye for it, yes. <laughs> that could be maybe a full book from you. <laughs> I, the fourth book. Yeah, well, I know I... No, I I actually it crossed my, like I said, I just for the first time have had time to start thinking about what I want to do next. And I was actually watching a, a video on Facebook, of course, which uh, it just gets more and more ironic of, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk. And he was giving a speech on a stage and this, you know, 12 year old YouTube kid, you know, stood up. He was a YouTuber and he said, you know, I've been stuck at 142 subscribers for so long and I can't get it higher like, do, do you have any advice? I'm working so hard and I can't get it higher. And he said, well, first of all, just stop caring about that and just, you know, care. if you're having fun, you know, just keep having fun. And the kid immediately started crying. And it's just like, mm. you know, it took me to like a real deep place of like, you know, what was going on in that kid's head that that just little bit of permission, that little bit mm. of permission to stop caring about subscribers from somebody older who he admired, you know, would just release that huge weight off of his shoulders that he would start crying. And, you know, I, I did kind of start, you know, thinking about, like, there's just an amazing examination, I think, especially among teenagers and people who have grown up without the comparison, you know, without the, without the digital free life to compare it to of, you know, what kind of pressures and, and, you know, psychological pinch points it's creating in these kids um, when you're, you know, most of your interaction in the world is, is through a screen. And we are at this inflection point where if we don't get it right now, it's going to get harder and harder. I mean, Because the technology is getting better and better. Yes. It's exactly. like I don't think, you know, I think, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't see the tide receding, unfortunately, because the technology, you know, is going to, you know, be getting better and better and more and more addictive and, and you know, more and more, you know, kind of rewarding. So it's uh, it's uh, it's interesting. Hopefully, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, people can step back. But, you know, all of these the slot machines, as you said, are, are getting better. And but I think the example that you gave of the 12 year old that was given permission, in a sense, um, the millions of people who admire you can also be given permission by you. Uh, I find it amazing how that one moment can help people realize, I, I don't have to really care about how many likes the picture of my salad at lunch got. You know, right. it's not really who I am as a human being. And maybe if you, they hear it from somebody who has... Well, tens of millions of likes, it makes more sense. Well, I mean, for me, it's, you know, it's, again, I always, you know, recenter it on time. It's that the reason that I started doing Humans of New York was, wouldn't it be amazing if I could somehow create a life to where I could support myself and fill my time with exactly what I want to be doing? Fast forward seven years later, you know, it's three best-selling books and I'm more than comfortable. You know, I've, you know, the books have done so well and, you know, 18 or 25 million, whatever people look at it. 
And, you know, all of these amazing things have happened associated with humans in New York. But still, you know, 100%, the thing that's most enjoyable, you know, about it to me is that I get to wake up every morning and choose the work I want to do. And I'm always very careful to emphasize the word choose because I think so many people use following their dreams as an excuse not to work. And you meet these people so much in New York. They play with their band just enough to call themselves musicians, or they write in their journal just enough to call themselves an author and not look for jobs and tell people that the reason they're not working is because they're chasing their dreams. And, you know, those are people who use chasing their dreams as an excuse not to work. In reality, getting to a point where you can do what you want to do is the hardest work of anything. And the goal is to not get to a point where you don't have to work. That's not the goal. It's getting to the point where you get to choose your work every day. I love what you said about time because time is something that I've always been so obsessed with to try and understand it in our lives. And everybody now is so much in a hurry, in perpetual hurry. And one of the amazing things about Humans of New York is that you kind of stop people. Is it sometimes hard to find someone who is willing to slow down and give you some of their that's, time? Yeah, it's the, you know, the hardest thing there is. It's, it's the, people always ask me, you know, how do you choose people? Um, and it's easy. It's that I have to find somebody who's alone, somebody who looks <laughs> like they're you know, in a contemplative mood and not hurrying somewhere, most likely in a park, um, because that is, that is another thing that makes the work so difficult is that I'm stopping random people and asking them for an hour of their time. And that's the the most, you know, difficult thing there is to do. And, you know, having just finished this television series, which I think is, you know, the greatest iteration of Humans of New York that's, you know, ever existed, um, you know, I, again, I realized that especially in, in modern day, you know, in modern day, you know, the attention economy, somebody might be more likely to give you $24 than to give you 24 minutes of their time. Mm-hmm. You know, time is the most precious thing, and it's getting more and more precious because people, the competition for it is higher and higher and higher. I just, I mean, Netflix's budget is the, you know, the the most clear example. It's when I, I think I started Humans of New York, I remember I was at the Webby Awards that first year. Netflix was just getting off the ground, and here I am seven years later. Netflix is spending seven times more money and there's seven times more scripted shows competing for people's attention. And so the the competition for people's time has never been greater. And, you know, therefore time has never been more valuable or harder to get from somebody than it is now. In fact, Reed Hastings said that Netflix's main competition, Reed Hastings being the yeah, CEO yeah. of Netflix, is sleep, which right. is just an amazing statement. Right, right. Because even if you are not a sleep evangelist as I am, we know human beings need sleep. So to compete with something so essential for human flourishing is just amazing. Okay, we're now going to take a quick break to share a sleep tip brought to you by our sponsor, Sleep Number. Because a good night's sleep is the foundation for thriving. Today's tip is to make your bedroom a sanctuary for sleep by keeping it dark and cool. How cool? Probably cooler than you think. Studies show that the ideal temperature for a restful night is actually in the mid-60s. 
So turn on that AC, open the windows or crank the fan, and use blackout shades or an eye mask to minimize light, which can disrupt your sleep pattern. This sleep tip was brought to you by the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed that adjusts to you. Learn more about it at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. So you've talked about the tension of trying to force happy endings on particularly tragic stories and how that's caused you to reflect on your role as a storyteller. So how has that role evolved for you? Um, well, I said that in relation to a story that I feel is one of the times that you and I's lives intertwined um, was a few years ago, there was a Syrian Iraqi refugee that was trying to get into the United States. Her story, which I won't go into, was just unbelievably tragic. And she had been accepted to the United States and then had her acceptance revoked at the last minute. And so I was trying to, you know, get and I had met this young woman and she wanted to go to school and educate herself. And she was the sweetest and smartest young person. And um, we had gotten a million signatures on a petition that you were helping me with. And then in the end, it just got denied. The application got denied. There was no answer, no explanation. And, you know, I think you caught me at a time there, you know, when I said that quote, when I was I was feeling a, a maximum you know, amount of frustration that I, I had kind of used, you know, all of my capital and all of my energy and the millions of people who follow my blog and their energy to try to kind of force a happy ending to a story. You know, I had felt ownership over a story that I was telling, and I wanted the narrative to have a happy ending. And I really burnt myself out trying to do that, and nothing came of it. And so I was having to reflect in that moment of how much ownership I should be feeling over the stories that I'm telling, and, you know, how much I should be trying to, you know, bring them to a, a just or a happy conclusion. You know, the irony about that being just a few weeks ago, um, several years later, you know, this young woman uh, got accepted to Switzerland uh, in large part because of the attention we brought to her several years ago. The nonprofit lawyers that we found for her who never stopped working from um, IRAP. What's that acronym? I want to I want to get <laughs> the Iraqi Refugee Assistance Program. I hope. Yes. Uh, they're a wonderful organization. You know, it ended up having a happy ending after all. So. I know that maybe I gave great, that maybe I gave that quote at too dark of a time. But it's such a great lesson that all the seeds that that you planted then sort of bore fruit years later when you had given up that anything good would happen. Right. And for me, this wasn't so much about you trying to force a happy ending to a Humans of New York story. It was more about the fact that you you so cared for that young woman and you you saw the sort of injustice that was being done and I um I remember talking with you at the time and yeah, you you, were, <laughs> you saw me in some weak moments during that time. No, you were I no you, I don't I think see you were it, feeding me tissues at the time. I don't see it as weak moments. I, I just it just um, really made me love you even more because you I saw your deep caring and compassion, which is really what comes across in the stories you tell. But sometimes getting as involved as you did in that story or in other stories is psychologically draining. So I want to know, how do you recharge? So at the end of a psychologically draining day, for whatever reason, 
What do you do? Um, <laughs> probably, <laughs> I probably, you know, recharge um, a lot less than, you know, most people. I, I got to the Catskills for the weekend uh, this week, which is like my first time away from the city in months and months and months because I've been working on this television series all day in the editing room. Um, you know, the example I always give is the as the most psychological draining of all the work that I've done um, is probably the refugee series, which Aya was a part of, and um, the pediatric cancer series, which was nothing but very tragic stories and with very little hope of resolution was that combination of, of telling these stories, meeting these people, you know, and and learning about their lives and knowing that their futures were, were had a good chance of, you know, being as sad as their past. And, you know, during both of those series, you know, interviewing, you know, patients and refugees over and over again for weeks, there was always, a, you know, a period where I kind of had a, a breakdown. I just, like, cried for, like, several hours because it was not several hours, but a while, um, you know, because it had you know, become so overwhelming. You know, the reason I think that I'm able to manage it and, you know, without a large degree of stepping away from it because I don't step back very often is, you know, I think when things are really draining uh, is when you feel like you don't have any agency over a situation. Like I, I know I talk to social workers a lot who get real mm-hmm. burned out because, you know, you're working and you're working and you're working and you're surrounded by all of this trauma and all of this sadness and you don't feel like you're doing anything or things are getting better. You know, I have a advantage kind of built into my work where I am able to share these people's stories with millions and millions and millions of people, which I know is therapeutic and cathartic for them to be able to plug into that Humans of New York community, which is very supportive, and, you know, take this thing that happened to them, which is so traumatic or so hard, and make it mean something by creating a narrative about it. I know Spielberg did this with Holocaust victims, and, you know, I know he spoke about how the very act of of taking tragedy and putting it into a story or putting it into a narrative takes something that seems so chaotic and meaningless and gives a sense of structure and a sense of meaning to it that, you know, provides, you know, some sort of relief or, you know, some sort of catharsis for the person telling the story. And, you know, I know that so many times when I finish telling or listening to a very tragic story, the end result is both me and that person profusely thanking each other. You know, me profusely thanking the person for sharing their story and them profusely thanking me for listening to it. And so I think that feeling of being able to provide that is is what keeps me from getting too worn down. And because also that's one of the things that's missing from our lives, you know, being listened to is becoming harder and harder. And being listened to is different than texting each mm-hmm, other. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's amazing. You know, I have two millennial daughters uh, who say, I talk to so-and-so. But when you actually <laughs> ask the second question, they didn't really talk to so-and-so. They texted so-and-so. It's the only time you can really, you know, it's like I talked to um, John Kabat-Zinn, 
who's a mindfulness expert, and he kind of heard me you know, talking about Humans of New York. And, you know, I was I asked him afterwards, um, you know, like what, and it's one of the really cool things about him is he's always never really kind of pushing his stuff. But, you know, I was like, oh, how do I learn more about mindfulness? And he said, well, you don't need it. One of the interesting things about Humans of New York is that, you know, for an hour or two hours or three hours or four hours, like every single day, like I am forced to forget about myself. Like I am forced to get out of my own head and not worry about my ego or this or that because you can't really listen to somebody while thinking about yourself. To really listen to someone you have to forget about yourself and focus exactly, you know, completely on their story. And so it's like I have this added benefit of, you know, the work being this kind of enforced mindfulness every day, whereas somebody who's always obsessing about what I'm going to do next and where I'm going to take humans of New York and, and, and what do I do and, you know, to it, it forces me to sit literally on the floor is where I normally do my interviews and, you know, not think about those things for an hour at a time and just kind of lose myself in somebody else. And, you know, that's why I think listening is, is so important. I think it's the ultimate act of humility because it is the you just you cannot really, really listen to somebody while thinking about yourself. I love that. And it also counteracts um, so much of what we were saying earlier about our addiction to our devices, which which is so much about ourselves and how we are going to present ourselves and how many people are going to like what we are presenting. But leaving aside the social media aspect, the phone itself. So what's your relationship with your phone? It's bad. How I, bad? It's bad. I mean, it's like it's, I think, you know, one of the reasons that I, you know, I'm so thankful for that time is because, you know, I have... You know, I know how strong, you know, kind of that addiction is in me. And it's because with Humans of New York, there's there's some sort of notification or email or update that is material to the future of Humans of New York kind of coming in every All couple of minutes. It's like, you know, when, when I pull my phone out of my pocket, you know, there's always something that has been updated or is happening. Um, you don't get notifications every time somebody not every time some not every time somebody, some, <laughs> not every time somebody <laughs> comments. No, you know. And so when I say it's it's bad, it's like this. Well, first of all, I think the way you move past something's to put a finger on it. So it's like I've put a finger on it a while ago. So I imagine it's much better than it used to be. I leave my phone at home a lot now. I'm going out with my wife, and we're going out to dinner. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've gotten to that point, but that's almost when you really realize how bad it is because your, your hand just goes to your pocket. You know what I mean? It's just like, there's, there's like a, a second break in the conversation <laughs> and your just hand goes to your pocket. And, and like, that's almost when you, I, you identify just how wrapped up in the synapses it is. So, um, you know, I, I am, I am getting better at it. And again, you know, the, way I always get past something is first by putting a finger on it. Um, you know, it's, that's, it's a rule I have. If I'm ever feeling jealous of somebody, I always tell them immediately um, because nothing dissipates something mm-hmm. by putting a finger on then it. Like I will say, it. like, man, I am so happy that you accomplished this. And I am also so jealous. Like that is something I would love to accomplish one day myself. You know, and by putting that finger on it, it just dissipates. Mm. Um, and so uh, I'm putting my finger 
on my phone addiction, and hopefully <laughs> it's getting better. Yeah. But especially because you've said to us uh, during your Thrive questionnaire that it is unnatural to be available all the time, especially for creative people, and that not responding to email or not responding to texts is seen as aggressive now, as though somehow um, there's something wrong. Right. Um, isn't that funny? It's like a hundred emails and, you know, all of all of these, like, text messages on my phone, and there is somebody on the other line who will probably take offense if I don't respond. And isn't that, like, such, like, an interesting, you know, dynamic of, like, today's society is that the default is immediate and pervasive mm-hmm. availability. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's that if you if you don't answer a text or a direct message or an email or an invitation or a, a request, you know, it is almost seemed as an aggressive act or a, a, a rude act. And, you know, it's kind of interesting, especially as an artist, because sometimes you just want to get away from everything and have space and, you know, not answer your phone. But the, you know, the devices in our pockets has, has created this expectation and almost this social obligation to be endlessly reachable, endlessly responsive, endlessly available. Uh, so, yeah, it's, an, it's something that I, I, I question in, uh, myself. I, so like, I still can't like, not answer email. <laughs> I still feel bad, but it's just a, a, weird, a weird position to be in. Well, that's why we are launching a Thrive app that... Um turns your smartphone into a dumb phone and it's bi-directional for the periods you specify. Let's say you're having dinner with your wife. If I text you, I'll get a text back that Brandon is in thrive mode until mm. X time. So by making it bi-directional, we hope we'll help change the culture so that it's no longer assumed that everybody has to be endlessly available. And also the app will give you a mirror of your social media consumption to make us more conscious and aware huh. Of how much time we spend. That's a great idea. So we'll see. Put put your finger on it. The app will help you put your finger on it. (laughs) Exactly. I love that expression. That's wonderful. And we were talking earlier about your habits around sleep and waking up. And you confess that you sleep with your phone by your bed. So I gave you the little phone bed, the charging station that I hope you'll use to put your phone in. Excited about that. And in the morning when you wake up, okay. is um, now that your phone is by your bed, do you go to it right away? Is it the first thing you go to? Well, first I try to fall back asleep. And I know if I start looking at my phone, then uh, my mind will start going off on something. Uh, I need my seven. I try to get seven and a half hours. Um, and I normally always wake up at like... You know, after six hours, I need to go back to sleep for mm-hmm. about an hour and a half. So I try not to grab my phone or look at my phone then. But once I'm up for good, one of the first things I do is reach for it. Yeah. But at least got to once... see who got indicted today. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, you it, can... it was hard at 6 a.m. to not see who got <laughs> indicted. But I uh, I waited till 730. All, all I'm saying is take two minutes before you go to see who got indicted. Okay. Not five, just two. What about night shift mode? Does that give me any points? Night I have shift started, mode. I started turning on the night shift mode. Absolutely. All those things are great. We believe in micro steps. Okay, okay. Baby steps. I've been turning my night shift mode on lately. <laughs> but do you see a connection in your own life between your physical and your mental health and sleep? Like 
when you've gotten your seven and a half hours, do you actually? Oh yeah, I'm. I really need my sleep, and even like seven hours and fifteen minutes, I can feel it all day. Like I, you know, I'd almost rather lay in bed for an extra hour, if even if I can't fall asleep, just to get my extra fifteen minutes, than to because then I lose an hour of the day, but then I feel hundred percent all the whole time I'm awake. Whereas if I, you know, get less than it, then I might save 30 minutes by getting out of bed, but then I'm operating at like, you know, 90 or 85% all day. So I am very, uh, I, I think I'm too sensitive to sleep. It's almost something I wish I could get past because uh, I feel like uh, I'd be a more productive person because I see all these people. I do see a lot of people only like sleep six hours or five hours and they seem fine or they seem... They seem uh, they seem energetic. I am. I do not function well if I if I don't get my sleep. So in fact, you are very lucky that you are aware of it because having studied the science of sleep, the truth is that unless you have a genetic mutation, mm-hmm. which is about one and a half percent of the population, the vast majority of us need seven to nine hours. Okay, so, so seven, the fact and, that seven and, and a half is a pretty standard number. Yes, then. the fact okay, that so you've identified lazy. seven and a half is okay. just completely normal. Okay, and um, and in fact. The best way to describe it is is you have to complete all the cycles of mm-hmm. sleep right. to be operating at 100%. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you do the laundry. Mm-hmm. Do you ever do the laundry? Oh, occasionally, yes. <laughs> and you try to get the, um, the laundry out of the laundry machine before all the cycles are complete, yeah. you end up with wet and dirty laundry. Right. So it's exactly the feeling that we have when we haven't gotten all the sleep we need. So now... On Thrive Global, we're trying to get new role models, people who are successful like you, like Jeff Bezos, who said, I need eight hours. And if I don't get eight hours... He gets eight? Yes. That is surprising because I have no idea how he does all that he does. He runs like 10 companies. He actually explained that what matters and what really defines him as a leader is the quality of his decisions. And he said, "If if I get six hours that I can actually see that my decisions are between 5 and 20% less good. And that's really what determines the future of Amazon and what's good for Amazon shareholders. So beginning to have this conversation makes a big difference because we are looking at the data and we're looking at the science and we are acknowledging the impact that sleep has in our lives. So I'm very glad that you acknowledge that. It, it puts you ahead of all those people who pretend they can um, go by and feel great without having all the sleep they need, which we know scientifically is not possible, unless you have a genetic mutation. And I find, like you do, that sometimes if you haven't gotten a full night's sleep, have a nap, and you're an occasional napper. Big napper, big napper. (laughs) (laughs) The 10 to to 15-minute nap is... is crucial. Uh, I'm a very talented napper too. I can nap sitting up, uh, which uh, people in my editing room have learned. So a couple of things on politics. You know, you you are famously apolitical, but in March of 2016, you wrote an open letter to Donald Trump, then just a candidate in the primary that went viral. In the letter, you said that while you try to stay non-political, you'd come to the conclusion that opposing Trump was no longer a political decision, but a moral decision. What did you mean by that? And do you still feel that way? You're you're (laughs) putting me back on a horse I got off a while ago. Um, (laughs) That was in March of 2016. That was very early in the the primary. 
the reasoning for writing that back then was that, you know, I think I was watching so many, you know, newscasts and, and telecasts that, you know, were talking about the political calculations of, you know, supporting Donald Trump or, you know, not supporting Donald Trump. And, you know, at the time it was just so, you know, frustrating to me because it just seemed like such a, you know, listening to the, the things that he was saying uh, in his stump speeches, uh, you know, which were, was the, you know, were so just morally sickening uh, that, you know, I was kind of at the time, you know, very, you know, just very upset that it kept being talked about in kind of political, you know, terminology. You can hear me kind of choking on my words because I haven't talked about this in a long time. Every single thing he does gets sliced up in, uh, you know, a thousand different ways, criticized a thousand different ways, retweeted a thousand different times. Every single criticism is over and over and over again. You know, I kind of looked at it and I decided, you know what, the most unique thing I can provide to the world right now is probably to get back to listening. My social media feeds is filled with everybody talking about their opinions on this and everybody talking politics. And, you know, I got here by listening. And, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to listening. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where I've been this last year. And do you find your feed uh, in terms of what you're hearing from um, the Humans of New York audience um, uh, having been politicized at all or not? Well, I mean, it's everything's politicized these days because you know everybody's so uh, everybody's it's you know, everybody's so anxious you know about it. Um, but you know, I I think that when I mean that's one of the the interesting things you know about traveling to foreign countries. You take you know the narratives we've been hearing about Iran and Pakistan and just Russia. You know, all we hear about is Putin. I was just in Russia. You know, all we hear is about is Putin this, Putin that. But when you go on the streets of Russia and you ask people about their problems, they're talking about their their father's illness. You know, they're talking about their their wife that is sick or, you know, somebody, their wife that got kidnapped or disappeared or, you know, their problems are, are very, very personal. And the, you know, the narratives that the media in my Twitter feed talks about ad nauseum, ad nauseum, ad nauseum, ad nauseum, is when you stop random people on the street and, you know, ask them what is bothering them, you know, they don't say Trump, you know, normally some of them do, but, you know, it's normally something, you know, much more personal. And so I think, you know, the humans of New York's value is kind of, you know, getting to those things. Um, and so those are the things I ask about, and those are the directions I go, whether it's in Pakistan, whether it's in Iran, whether it's in Russia, or whether it's in New York City. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Trump game is a very crowded field. Uh, there's <laughs> plenty of people talking about that and plenty of people analyzing it. And, you know, there might be a time in, in the future where I feel like, you know, my voice can can help again um but you know now i think you know the best thing i can do is just take people maybe marginalized people you know maybe maybe people that are threatened and just present them as they are and not them as part of a political story or a political narrative 
So let's wrap up by going from politics to religion. Because religion plays such an important role in a lot of your stories. So does faith play a role in your life? And have you learned anything hearing so many different perspectives on faith? You know, I I did a lot of interviews for these um these these video interviews. And there was this one woman who she started saying, uh, you know, I just think about the world. I am just amazed. I mean, what are we? Like, what is this? What is this skin? It's skin and bones, and, and it has a soul, and there's cars driving around. And when you go to the beach, you ever look? The water just comes up to the beach and just stops. How did all of this get here? How did? And this was just this beautifully dressed, mm. elegant, sophisticated African American woman. And then she's just saying, how did this get there? And she just started crying on, on camera. And I, and people, you know, I think some people who I showed that to was like, man, that woman's kind of kooky, uh, you know. But to me, I, she's the person who, you know, most I think approximates, you know, my, my spiritual views is that, you know, I think it begins with gratitude. It's just, you know, thankfulness for being here, thankfulness for being alive, that the mysteries and the things that we will not know are always going to be trillions and trillions and times more than the things that we do know. And if those mysteries and that our inability to comprehend them doesn't at least open up your mind and your eyes to the possibility and the humility to assume that we don't understand everything, and there's a good chance that there's, you know, beautiful surprises out there that, that, that we've yet to learn that will blow our minds. Um, you know, that that's just kind of that's just kind of how how I view it. It's just a big question mark. And I and I feel like so many people think it's a period. And they, <laughs> you know, they understand it. Oh, look at you know, life life is a period. Look at these crazy people with their Bibles and their Qurans, you know, and and oh, you know, don't don't they understand that evolution and this and this and which, you know, it's all true, but behind every discovery we make is going to be a mystery that's a hundred times greater. Mm-hmm. And that does not end. You know, that's just it's it's going to be an eternal mystery. And, you know, I, I think I would side with the people who, you know, choose to just be, you know, blown away by it and thankful for it and, you know, see it as unexplainable than people who think that they've read some science books and has got everything <laughs> figured out. I love that. And and that probably connects you more and more with your humanity and the humanity we share with others. That's such a big part of what you're doing and what your wife, Erin O'Sullivan, is doing um, with her Susie's Senior Dogs, that amazing organization she's running that finds homes for senior dogs. I love how you both have that um, deep sense of compassion because beyond Humans of New York, I just want to mention also all the money you've raised for causes so that you constantly want to make what you are doing tangible um, in people's lives. Brandon, Thank you so much. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app. And stay tuned to thriveglobal.com 
and iHeartRadio for updates on upcoming episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com slash thrive.